And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, God who is our security and our hope. Amen. You know, sometimes when I hear gospel lessons like the one from this morning, I marvel at Jesus' social calendar. I think he must have been an extrovert because he was constantly accepting invitations to dinner parties and having meals with people. It was far more dinner parties than I could manage. We could probably turn every evening meeting and every rehearsal that's on our church calendar into a dinner party, and we still wouldn't be dinner partying as much as Jesus was. Can you imagine being the disciple in charge of keeping that calendar? Oh, thank you, Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus would be glad to accept your invitation to dinner. When did you have in mind? Oh, no, Friday he's with Simon. No, the other Simon, the one who's a religious extremist? Yeah. The following Tuesday, let's see. Um, no, he's at Mary's. No, the other Mary, the one who's single? No, the other single Mary, <laughs> the one who had all the demons? Yeah. Oh, Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday could work. Now I just want to check that this is going to be a scandalous party with all the most unsavory people, right? Yeah, that's no problem for Jesus. He'll see you there. If there had been tabloids in the first century, I think Jesus would have been in them a lot. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He was not naively stumbling into the company of degenerates. And he also wasn't using people to make a point or to gain a photo op. Jesus was showing up in all the wrong places and with all the wrong people because in his mind, in his heart, there was no such thing. No such thing as wrong people. It's easy to roll our eyes at the people who were scandalized by Jesus' social life. I mean, who cares who someone eats with anyway? They must have been religious nutcases to be so obsessed with Jesus' choice of company. But I would like us to try to have some empathy for those religious leaders. Because the truth is, the scandalized people were not extremists or unusually strict. They were respectable religious folks the folks who cared about not offending their neighbors. So let's take a moment to imagine those situations when we might look askance at a public figure for the company they keep. You know those loud block parties? The ones where all the cars and trucks park on the lawn and in the morning there's litter strewn all over the grass? How would it feel if we found out that a pastor we know was at that party last weekend? Or what about the seedy motels? You know the ones. The hotels that we tell our out-of-town guests not to book a room at. Would we really be comfortable if we found out that a pastor we knew was eating dinner there? Not dropping off a donation of food, but spending the whole evening visiting with folks, eating food they shared. It would be a little uncomfortable 
I mean, we can all imagine what happens at motels like that. Even if we aren't personally scandalized, we could understand why some folks might have questions. Developing empathy for the religious leaders portrayed in our gospel texts is an important spiritual practice for two reasons. The first reason is that vilifying these leaders, reading these stories with the assumption that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious scholars are the bad guys, has resulted in centuries of anti-Semitism in Christian churches. And our church needs to be confronting and undoing anti-Semitism, not contributing to it. The second reason is that as much as we all love to identify with the underdog, the reality is that most of us in the church occupy the same social positions as those religious leaders. We want to identify with the disciples or maybe the people who come to Jesus to get healed. But a whole lot of the time, we in these pews are the religious people. So if we really want to learn from Jesus what he intended to teach, we need to be willing to be challenged in the ways that those religious leaders were challenged. Having empathy for those religious folks, trying to put ourselves in their shoes, is often the path of spiritual integrity and maturity. A natural human pattern is the tendency to define insiders and outsiders, us and them. It's not an inherently bad thing. This ability helps us survive during childhood because we learn to recognize the adults who are most closely related to us and therefore most likely to care for us. It's good that children can recognize who they belong with. And it is universal, we all develop this tendency. All of us walk around with a sense of who our folks are and all those others who aren't really our folks, us and them. We might not always be conscious of those categories or how we communicate them, but the categories exist. I wanted to set all of that up before we look at our parables this morning, because these are really familiar parables. We've heard the story of the lost sheep. We've heard the story of the widow who lost her coin. And often we hear these familiar parables and we experience comfort from them. We know that every individual matters to God, that we matter to God, that God will go searching even for one lost sheep and rejoice when they are found. All of this is true and important. And the comfort that we experience from knowing this about God's character is good. But there is a very specific reason that Jesus told these parables at this time. Before he tells them, we read that tax collectors and sinners were flocking to Jesus while he was teaching 
and the religious scholars and Pharisees murmured, this person welcomes sinners and eats with them. The respectable religious folks were uncomfortable with the people who were drawn to Jesus and his teachings. These were outsiders that they didn't feel comfortable including in their own faith community. Jesus sensed that discomfort and addressed these parables to those religious leaders. Jesus is not using these parables to convince the so-called sinners that God loves them. I think that in this instance, the crowd that's gathered around Jesus might already know that they are beloved. I'm sure that Jesus' parables were still comforting to them, but that was a byproduct, not the main point. The main point of these parables is to erase the line between insiders and outsiders that the religious folks had drawn. We know that in these parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin represent the so-called sinners. And the intent focus of the shepherd and the woman as they seek out the one that is lost communicate why Jesus has prioritized relationships with these so-called sinners. Jesus is willing to leave the 99 respectable religious folks to find the one who is lost. That is God's priority. The priority of heaven, the angels rejoice. But the lost sheep and the lost coin are not strangers. They are not outsiders. They have always belonged. The one lost sheep was with the rest of the flock earlier that day. The coin was part of the wealth that the woman had always treasured. When they are found, it is a celebration not because a new sheep has been added to the fold or a brand new coin discovered. The celebration is a homecoming, a reunion of treasures that have always belonged. Jesus is telling these religious folks that the people they perceive as outsiders already belong in God's community. There is no us and them. This parable is a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us who consider church home or family. It's a reminder that God's community of beloved ones is far bigger than our own comfort zones. And that a church that is faithfully following Jesus will be consistently bumping up against our comfort zone as we work to include the people that God draws home. I'll be honest, this particular challenge is my favorite thing about Jesus. In the seasons of my life, when I have wondered whether I can still call myself a Christian, whether I still want to call myself a Christian, I find myself consistently drawn back to Jesus. 
sitting at a table full of people who make me feel kind of uncomfortable, asking, are you going to join in the feast? And I do. I want to be a part of that feast, that family of misfits. I think anyone who has come to this church long enough to join in our weekly affirmation that no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. I think all of us who say that want to be a part of that kind of community. As uncomfortable as it can be to form community with people who are different from ourselves, we want that. We want to be a part of God's big, inclusive family. But this quality is not a static one. A church can't just decide one January at an annual meeting that they will be a church that welcomes everyone and then print it in the bulletin and make it true forever. That would be like saying, we have an excellent music program here, but then never holding choir rehearsals, never tuning the instruments, never trying new hymns. It wouldn't take long for the excellent music to begin to feel stale. Radical hospitality. The kind of hospitality that assumes that each person is someone who already belongs to God and might become a gift to our community. That kind of hospitality is a value that we commit to practicing. We model it. We teach it. We invest in it. We get better knowing that there is always more to learn always new people to welcome with different needs than we have recognized in the past. We practice drawing the circle of community wider, knowing that it will be uncomfortable, knowing that each one of us might, on a given day, feel more like the religious folks in Luke's gospel, wondering, who are these strangers? Are they really meant to be here on a Tuesday? They don't really feel like they belong here. A Lutheran pastor, Matthew Weber, shared the insight that whenever we draw a line between us and others, Jesus is always on the other side of that line. That is the point of these parables. The religious leaders have drawn a line between themselves and the sinners, and Jesus plants himself on the other side of that line and says, these sinners belong with me. The angels rejoice when they are restored to community. Drawing lines of belonging is inevitable. It's a survival skill that we've evolved and it serves us well in some circumstances. But when those lines of belonging begin to exclude people from the church, we will always find Jesus on the other side of that line saying, look at these kinfolk, look at these beloved ones. These are your family too. In the past, Commissioning Sunday, this first Sunday after Labor Day, 
has been an opportunity to pray for our ministry teams and the leaders of this church. But this year, I would like us all to remember that the work of the church, the work of hospitality and justice, is work that we share. Every person here participates in living out our calling. In a minute, Pastor Caroline will lead us in renewing this commitment with a responsive covenant. A covenant is a churchy word for a promise. A pledge that we will be in relationship with one another and with God in a particular way. And today's covenant is based on the vision statement that is printed in our bulletin every week. You can look for it. The vision that we are a community of love, that we practice justice and radical hospitality. Jesus invites us to make space at his table. Space for new faces. Space for differences we don't understand. Space to celebrate the homecoming of people we never even realized were part of God's family. This is not a new commitment. Many of us are here because we know that this church practices hospitality already. But today is a good day to remember and celebrate and recommit to this calling that we share. And if this is your first time visiting First Congregational Church, we hope you'll linger, that as you grab your lunch to go, you will share your name with two people or five people. We hope that we will see you again because perhaps without any of us knowing it, today is your homecoming celebration. And if so, we look forward to getting to know you. Amen.